Amen. You guys can have a seat. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Will, and I have the great privilege and honor of serving as a pastor of this church. And one of the things about me is in my sermons, I've been known every now and then to break out in song. And usually it's not planned. Usually it's just the spirit leading me. And typically I'm all alone. Nobody sings with me. I'm about to sing. And if you know the words, I want you to sing along with me. In West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is where I spent most of my days. Chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool and all shooting some b-ball outside of the school. When a couple of guys, they were up to no good, started making trouble in my neighborhood. I got in one little fight. My mom got scared. She said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel Air. All right. You don't have to keep going. There you go. If, uh, if, if you're around my age, you know the words by heart. And the premise of that television show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, was that Will Smith, young Will Smith, was in trouble in Philadelphia. So the Fresh Prince had to leave Philadelphia to save himself. Now, today we are continuing in our study on Jesus' letters to the churches in Revelation. And this morning we're studying a letter written to the church in Philadelphia. Now, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia in Asia. But just like the Fresh Prince, this church was experiencing trouble. But unlike the Fresh Prince, the remedy for their trouble was not to leave Philadelphia, but rather it was to stay and to remain and to endure and to be faithful to the way of Jesus, even when trouble and discouragement were all around them. And the promise of Jesus in his letter to them is that he will strengthen them. Listen to what he says to the church in Philadelphia. This is Revelation chapter three, verse seven. He says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia, he says, look, I know that you have very little power. Other translations say, I know that you have very little strength. The truth about the church in Philadelphia is that they were powerless. They were weak. They were unimpressive, but they were faithful. And because of this, Jesus offers nothing but praise and promise to them. 
And I find it interesting that when you look at churches like Sardis, which we saw last week, this is a church that was big and blusterous and impressive. They were growing and they, they had influence. And Jesus looked on the heart and he said, you look impressive on the outside, but inside I'm unimpressed. But then on the flip side, here's this church that from the outward appearances looks totally weak. And Jesus says, you will remain faithful. He has no words of rebuke to them, only words of praise and words of promise for them. And this was a weak church. This was an unimpressive church. This was a church that wasn't strong. They were powerless. And we also know from verse 9, that whole synagogue of Satan stuff. We'll get to that in a little bit. But we know that this church was facing persecution. We know also from history that these Christians in this community had suffered likely great loss. This letter was also written around 90 AD, which is a few decades before this letter was, or this letter was written around 90 AD. And just a few decades before that, Philadelphia was struck by a massive earthquake. Some scholars, archaeologists and whatnot believe that the earthquake in around 20 AD in Philadelphia might have been one of the greatest earthquakes in history. And the devastation of the city of Philadelphia in this earthquake was so severe, the Roman Senate was generous to them and not only offered assistance to rebuild the city, but they exempted the city from paying taxes until the rebuilding of the city was complete. But it actually took this city far longer to rebuild than they originally had planned and they expected because, as you often know, when earthquakes happen, there's, also, there's often things after them called aftershocks. And other earthquakes in this city for years and years and years and years after one major earthquake, they would continue to face aftershock after aftershock and even sometimes even greater earthquakes. And what would happen is they would rebuild their homes only for an aftershock or another earthquake to bring it toppling right back down. They would rebuild their city only for the city to come falling back down again. And history tells us that many of the residents felt so unsafe. They were so afraid of their roof falling in on them that many of the people in Philadelphia left the city and moved to the countryside. But Jesus is writing this letter to the Christians who stayed. And you can imagine that these Christians were discouraged. They felt like they couldn't get ahead in life. They were persecuted and they were oppressed by Rome and they were persecuted and oppressed by the synagogue of Satan. Like I said, that we'll talk about in a moment that because of all these things, they were likely poor And to add on top of that, the ground beneath them was literally shaking. And they had to have been discouraged. They felt weak. They felt powerless. And they probably were tempted to give up. And Jesus writes this letter to encourage them, to give them a promise, and to keep them holding true to the faith. And I know that many of you come in here this morning, and like these Christians in Philadelphia, you feel weak. You feel unimpressive. You feel vulnerable. You feel powerless. You feel like your life has very little value. You may feel like the ground beneath you is shaking and you feel like you have trouble standing. Or maybe you feel like the roof metaphorically is crumbling in on you. Or you may feel like you're trying to put your life back together, but as soon as you've rebuilt it, it feels like it comes right toppling right back down again. You feel like you can't get ahead. And if you feel weak and if you feel vulnerable or tired or unimpressive this morning, I want you to know that Revelation 3 is not just a letter for these Christians 
2,000 years ago in Philadelphia. It is a letter for you today here in Brooklyn. And there are three promises from this text this morning that I think are true for all those who are faithful to Jesus. And if you're weak and unimpressive this morning and you feel unimpressive this morning, I want you to take these promises to heart. The first one is this. Through Christ and through faith in Christ, there is an open door that no one can shut. Jesus says there's an open door that no one I've opened a door for you that no one can shut. My wife, who is serving in the kids right now, she is a social worker for an adoption agency. So she works with an adoption agency trying to place families with children that are in need of parents. And she works with birth mothers and she does all sorts of counseling and does amazing, 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 amazing things. And one of her jobs is to raise awareness for her agency around the city. So her adoption agency. So her job is to go to doctors and medical offices, hospitals, planned parenthoods, pregnancy support services, and her job is to take brochures and flyers about her agency. Because what she wants is she wants mothers and doctors and families to be aware of the options that are available to women who are facing difficult decisions. And my, my wife's desire is that children that don't have a home or don't have a birth parent that can care for them would be placed into a home where they can be cared for. That's good work. That's like gospel, good work. That is making all things new kind of work. But you would be surprised at how many offices and how many people refuse to hear about this. She'll take her brochure. She'll take her flyers. She'll go to whoever's working the desk or she'll go to the doctors and they'll say, no, 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 we're not interested in that. And she has literally had doors slammed in her face. And it's discouraging to her because she knows she's doing a good thing. Like she's like, I'm doing a good thing. And it's discouraging for her when she's like, I'm trying to do a good thing in this world, trying to connect families. So it's discouraging when people shut the door on her or ignore her. And many of you, though, you also know what it's like to have a figurative door slammed in your face. Maybe there's something good in your life that you want, something that you want for yourself or for others or for your faith. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a child, maybe it is an opportunity, maybe it is whatever. There's something that you desire that you know is good, yet it feels like every time you pursue it, a door gets slammed in your face. And you're like, how do I get ahead? What do I have to do? And I'm sure that this is exactly what these Christians in Philadelphia felt as well, because here they were. In this part of the world where they are being persecuted, they're being oppressed, they're living in poverty, and the roof is literally caving in on them. And they're like, God, we're being faithful to you. We're remaining faithful to what you've called us to do. We are proclaiming your name and we are suffering for it. We're still being oppressed. People are still shutting doors in our faces. And I want you to hear what Jesus says to them. And I want you to imagine for a moment for a people that feel oppressed and they feel like opportunities are being closed off to them. I want you to try to imagine what it would have been like for them to get a letter from Jesus to their church, specifically for them. And they read these words. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, this is the words of Jesus. I am the holy one, the true one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know the oppression that you face. I know all the things you do to remain faithful to me. And yet you continue to be oppressed. I see it all. But he says, behold, I want you to see I have set before you an open door that nobody's able to shut. Now, what door is Jesus talking about? What kind of key is Jesus speaking of as well? Some say that Jesus is telling these Christians that they have an open door to take the message of the gospel to the world. That they have an opportunity, the way they're situated and in ge- geographically, they have an opportunity for mission expansion in the world. And that might be true because they do have an opportunity. There were roads that went in and out of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was known as a hub of Greek culture meant to send Greek culture out into the world, which positioned them to also send, send the gospel out into the world. And so that's, it's possible that that's true. And history does tell us that it, the church of Philadelphia was faithful to the end and that they, remain, they were a major missionary influence in taking the gospel to India. We know these things about Philadelphia. But I don't think that's the open door that Jesus is talking about. But here's what I think it is. I think Jesus is saying, I've saved you. I've called it because he mentions the key of David, which is a messianic reference. It's referencing Isaiah 22 about salvation. I don't think he's talking about missions, which I think is a good thing. I think he's talking about that the door that has been opened for us is the very presence of God, the very kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus is saying, I've saved you. I've called you out of darkness into light. You were once lost, but I found you. You were once dead, but now you are alive. See, at the core of Christian theology is this belief that Jesus saves sinners. Even though we do not deserve any blessings from God, Jesus offers to us God's greatest blessing. He dies for us so that we can have eternal life. And so that this temporary afflicted world that we live in today will not be our eternal home. And without Christ, the kingdom of heaven is there is a door between us and the kingdom of heaven that we can't open. We're locked out. We're too weak. We carry too much shame and too much guilt and we have no power to open that door. We cannot save ourselves. And Lord knows we try, don't we? We try and we try and we try to give ourselves satisfaction, to give ourselves peace, to give ourselves assurance, to give ourselves, um, I mean, rest. We look for it in our jobs, in our relationships, in our finances. We look for it in our identities. And yet we still feel restless. That door to everlasting peace just feels locked to us. And the scripture says it is. Because we don't have the key. We're too weak. We carry too much shame and guilt. We have no power. But the message of the gospel is that Jesus holds the keys. And through his death and his resurrection, he opens the door for us to enter. And I love that. I love what Jesus says here. He says, when I open a door, nobody can shut it. And when I shut a door, no one can open it. And the reverse is true. When we, sh- when we try to close doors or when our enemies try to shut doors, Jesus, it, they have no power over Jesus. One of my favorite, I, on Easter every year, I always read this verse and I just laugh. It's so humorous. Matthew 28, 65, Pilate says to the soldiers of the tomb, Jesus has died. They've put him in the tomb. They've rolled the stone over the tomb. And Pilate, the governor of 
uh, Jerusalem says uh, to the soldiers, he says, go and make the tomb as secure as you can. Don't let anything out. Nice try, you know, (laughs) because three days later, Jesus didn't need any help. He didn't need anybody to distract the guards. He didn't need anybody to come in and open it from the outside. Jesus holds the keys to any and every door. And Jesus rolled away his own tombstone. That Jesus opens doors and shuts doors and no one else has any power over them other than him. Death has been defeated. You have a home in heaven in the very presence of Christ. What door has God opened for us? What door has he has opened very entrance into the presence of God, the kingdom of heaven. What you could not do, God has done. And what that means is there is nothing that you can do that can separate you from the love of God. There is no sin that you could go. If you are in Christ, there is nothing you could go out and do this afternoon that could close the door that God has already opened for your salvation. There is nothing that you could do to close the door that God has already opened for you. There is no failure on your part that can close the door. And listen to this. There's no earthquake, whether literal or figurative or persecution, that can close the door that God has opened. He has opened the door to walk into his very presence. So are you discouraged? Are you persecuted? Are you on shaky ground? Take heart. All other doors may be slammed in your face, but the very kingdom of God has been opened for you by the blood of Jesus. And that door will never be shut. Second promise for you today, if you feel weak and you feel unimpressive, is that you will, in time, because of the gospel, be acknowledged before your enemies. He says in verse 9, Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews, but are not, But they lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this passage makes us a little bit nervous. You're like, that sounds, is that anti-Semitic? What is that all about? Jesus, here's what's happening. Jesus is calling out the Jews in the city of Philadelphia in the same way that he called out the Christians in Sardis last week. He says, look, you say you're one thing, but your life indicates that you're not that. See, the Jews in the, in the city of Philadelphia were cooperating with the Roman government to oppress and persecute the Christians. And Jesus says, you say you're Jews, but you're not. That's not how Jews behave. And he calls them the synagogue of Satan. That's harsh. And there's no way for me to like explain that away. Well, what Jesus? Jesus means synagogue of Satan. In this, why does he use that language? Because in the scriptures, Satan, you know what he's known as? You know what he's called? The deceiver, he's called a liar, and he's called the accuser. The the M.O. of Satan is that he accuses you. And he causes you, he deceives you, and he causes you to believe lies about God and about yourself. He casts doubt on the identity that God has given you. Kyle preached an excellent sermon on this just a few weeks ago. And when you hear that voice in your head that says, oh, you're unworthy, Or how could you? You're unlovable. Or you have no value. Or God could never love you. That is the voice of Satan. That's the voice of the accuser. The voice of the enemy. And in Philadelphia, this church had enemies. 
that told them that they were unworthy. Voices that persecuted them and ridiculed them. And in our lives today, we have enemies. Sometimes we are our own enemies. We say to ourselves things that contradict what God says about us. We lie to ourselves. We put labels on ourselves that God never gave us. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I'm this. I'm that. But God has said, you're a a saint. You're a child of the king. We define ourselves often by our worst mistakes, don't we? And we feel like there's like a banner over our head that just announces and marks us by the worst decisions and worst mistakes we've ever made. Rather than living in the identity that God has given us, which you are a beloved child of God. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy because we believe the lies of the ultimate enemy. But sometimes in this world, we have actual enemies. People who actively want to see our faith destroyed. Jesus promises that all those lies you've told yourself and all those people who have actively worked to destroy your faith will one day, quote, he says, learn that I have loved you. I think you guys remember a couple years ago in Egypt when they beheaded, I think, 21 Christian men on like worldwide television. There's coming a day when those men that held the knives and slit the throats of those Christians that they will find out that God loved those men that they killed. When I was a college pastor, uh, one night I taught, uh, we did these late college worship gatherings, Monday nights. They went from like 8, to 8, 8, 8 p.m. to like 11 p.m. I, I don't have the energy to do that anymore. I'm glad Sunday morning's at 10.30 a.m. But one night I taught a room full of college students about on Peter's dream in Acts chapter 10. If you're familiar with that, Uh, passage, Jesus tells Peter, do not call unclean what I call clean. Well, after the service, a teenage girl, college age girl comes forward and she comes up to me and one of my staff members and she's just in tears. And she told us through sobs as the music played behind us, she said, I have a reputation on this campus. She said, I've slept with a lot of guys. Many in this room, she said. And she said, because of that, I've been called a lot of names. People have written about me on social media. People have called me awful, awful things. And she said, I've even believed those names about myself. I've called myself those names. She said, but hearing the words of Jesus tonight, hearing him say, do not call unclean what I call clean. She said, I've made some mistakes in my life. She said, but I know Jesus and he calls me clean. She said, on campus, I may be known as a slut or a whore, but to God, I am a daughter. I'm a saint. Listen, those other students, they were mean spirited and they may have gotten a good laugh by making accusations and insults toward her. But there is coming a day in the very presence of God where her accusers will know that she is loved by God. And listen, here's what I want you to know today. Whatever voice you have speaking over your life right now, whatever lies you are believing, when God's voice speaks, the voices of our enemies ought to be silenced. We ought to turn it up to 11, so to speak. 
Often we listen, we turn the volume of everybody else's voices up way too loud and we turn the volume of the voice of Christ way too low. But when you hear the attacks from the enemy, the accusations from the enemy, you crank the voice of Jesus up because whatever they may say and whatever you may believe, Jesus is saying, you are my child. I am well pleased with you. The third promise is that you will be a pillar that will not be shaken. I love this. There's a lot. I mean, this is like rapid fire promises from Jesus right here. Listen to this. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. That's the second promise. Hold fast to what you have. Here's another promise so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, here's a promise, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Another promise, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. There's a lot of promises there, aren't there? You'll be kept from the trial that's coming. No one will seize your crown. You will be kept until the very end. You will be a temple in, uh, in the te- You will be a pillar in the temple of my God. I will give you a name. What name? My name. God says, I will give you my name. The name of my city, the new Jerusalem, which I'm bringing down from heaven. My name you receive. A lot of promises here, but I hear I think the very point is that Jesus is telling these Christians who are facing persecution to keep their eyes fixed on what lies ahead. Not on their current situation. Colossians 3, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus uses the language in Revelation 3 of pillars. And what's so amazing about that is Jesus knows the future, right? He knows all things. If you were to go to the ancient city of Philadelphia today, you know all that's left is a bunch of row of pillars sticking up out of the ground. That's all that's left of Philadelphia today. Jesus is telling them the earth will give way, but my gospel remains forever. And those who place their trust in me, you may be shaken, but you will not crumble. If you know the future, you can endure the present. And the future is that you will stand. Howard Thurman was a scholar, philosopher, civil rights leader. And he was lecturing one time at Harvard on Negro spirituals. The civil rights leader was lecturing on the value of the old Negro spirituals, the hymns. And one, you know college student speaks up they said he criticized him and said you know the the negro spirituals they were too otherworldly it caused those slaves to be content with their station and it hindered their fight for freedom and for civil rights they should have cast aside all of the religion and fought for justice and in this lecture thurman schooled this student he said no 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 you don't understand he said these slaves they fought for justice They weren't just content with their situation. But he said it was because the slaves believed deeply in the new heavens and the new earth. And because they believed in a judgment day. 
That they were able to endure the torment from their oppressors because they knew there was coming a day when Jesus would make all things new and that before their enemies, their enemies would know that they were loved by God. And they knew that eventually all their desires would be fulfilled and that because of the gospel, no injustice would go unpunished. And Thurman said it was that hope, the hope in the kingdom of heaven that that was so strong that no amount of oppression could extinguish it. Why? Because it wasn't in the present, but it was in the future and it was guaranteed and guarded by God himself. And no matter how hard their masters and their owners tried, they could not undo what God, they could not prevent what God was going to accomplish. And American slaves were able to have joy in their present age because they had hope in the next. And likewise, it was civil rights leaders like Thurman and Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks that were able to endure the troubles they faced in the 60s because they were confident of the ending in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, I, this, the, I have a dream speech. Like Martin Luther King is speaking of the age to come that is giving him strength in the age that is. And history is leading to a moment. Revelation 21 tells us, or Revelation 4 tells us, a throne room of God where every tribe, tongue, nation, and language all together will be praising God for all of eternity in unity. And a vision of that will help you endure the oppression you face today. Slaves used to sing while they worked, I've got a robe, you've got a robe. All of God's children got a robe. When I get to heaven, I'm going to put on my robe. I'm going to shout all over God's heaven. I've got a crown in the kingdom. Ain't that good news? Stripped naked, scars on their back, but they were singing and rejoicing in the robe that was theirs. The vision of heaven helped them endure the pain of their present. And that is true for you today as well. Whatever earthquakes are shattering your life right now, whatever weakness or powerlessness you feel, all throughout the Bible, God calls his people to look forward in their trials rather than be consumed by them. Listen, we live in a broken world. Trials will come. Earthquakes will shake the foundation of our lives. It will happen. If it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen to you. We will face sorrow and we will grieve. But the great promise of the gospel is this. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 We do not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. John 16, in the world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Later in the book of Revelation, the Bible ends. This book ends with John writing that there is coming a day where God will dwell with us and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more and there will be no more mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Do you feel like this church in Philadelphia this morning? Do you feel weak? Do you feel unimpressive? Like doors are being slammed in your face? Would you this morning believe the promises of God? Tim Keller writes, do you know what it means to be a pillar? It means to know, I don't know why I'm suffering today. 
I don't understand the meaning of it. I don't understand the meaning of suffering in general. But I do know that suffering will be over. And I know that because someone came down from heaven and took it into himself. The hot lava of all suffering fell into his heart. And as a result, there will be an end to everything I'm experiencing now. You can laugh. You can cry. You can be a pillar because Jesus is preparing a place for you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.